Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very fun and fantastic episode. It's the 2022 Mid-Year Adaptation in Review episode. Normally, I do an end-of-the-year episode, but I wasn't able to do that in 2021, so I decided just to do it mid-year this year. Joining the podcast is Sean Martin, Vice President of Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience at World Wildlife Fund, and Monica Serrano, Resiliency Program Manager at Turner Construction. The three of us list our top climate stories of the year. Monica and Sean share their favorite America Adapts episodes and why they stood out. We also discuss potential future topics for the podcast and our favorite and most useful adaptation resources. It's a fun and informative conversation. I always love doing these. Also joining the podcast for a short interview is Dr. Jeff Colgan, the director of the Climate Solutions Lab at Brown University. He tells us about a resource they host at the lab that allows professors to upload their climate change class syllabi to a database where it becomes searchable. It's a useful resource as more and more college programs are bringing climate change into their programs. Jeff explains the history of the database and how you can use it. Okay, upcoming episodes, Lisa Craig of the Craig Group is coming on to talk historic preservation and adaptation. I'm also doing a deep dive on the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. We'll learn if it actually funds adaptation and resilience projects. It's truly great news that it's passed, but we definitely need to make sure adaptation is getting the funding it deserves. Great stuff on the way. Before we get started, here's a promo for the Citizens Climate Radio podcast. Then we'll join Sean and Monica for the mid-year review. Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano, host of Citizens Climate Radio. We highlight people's stories. We celebrate your successes. And together we share strategies for talking about climate change. We do all this by hearing from some pretty surprising climate advocates. We feature politicians, preachers, and poets. Citizens Climate Radio is designed to inform you about the many ways people are addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Subscribe and listen to Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. We have a very special episode for you. Every year, I typically do a year-in-review episode, but in 2021, time got away from me and I wasn't able to publish it. So I decided to do a mid-year review for 2022. Joining me is Monica Serrano of Turner Construction and Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund. Hi, Monica and Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Good to be back. Hello, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. Monica, you are new. This is the first time you've been on the podcast and we've met over LinkedIn. And I, you know, I invited you on because I wanted to get your perspective. You work for the private sector, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you do there at Turner Construction. Sure. So I have worked for Turner Construction for 18 years now. Turner is a construction management company. We build anything between airports, hospitals, schools. We work both in the public and private industries. And what I have done in the last three years is lead a resiliency program. And that boils down to encouraging our clients to incorporate resiliency in the buildings that we build for them, incorporating resiliency in our operations, so our job sites and you know, our business model, and in our people. And that's as it relates to personal resilience. So that's what I have been doing the last couple of years and what led me to reaching out to you and being part of this adaptation community. Yeah, great. And I think the main reason I invited you on is you're a big fan of Carlos Vivas. So yeah, you know, he's fantastic. <laughs> that's right. Yes, my background. So my parents are Colombian. I was born and raised in Venezuela. And I moved to the United States when I was 17. I came here as an exchange student and stayed. Fantastic. 
All right, Sean, let's get to you. You've been on the podcast multiple times before, but in case we have new listeners, who are you and what do you do there at WWF? Hey, Doug. Yeah, I'm uh, Sean Martin, and I'm the Vice President for Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience at World Wildlife Fund. I'm based in Washington, D.C. Many of your listeners will know what World Wildlife Fund is and does. We're a global nonprofit organization that helps people in nature thrive together all across the world. And my role on the adaptation team, I like to think I have really two roles. One is to bring adaptation into conservation, and that's mostly working with my colleagues here at WWF and at other conservation organizations. And then externally, I think my role is bringing conservation into the field of adaptation. And so when we work with our partners to make sure they're thinking about nature and the value of nature as they help communities adapt. Yes, and I encourage my listeners to go back and listen to those episodes with Sean, some fantastic stuff kind of like behind the scenes of how WWF does that with conservation adaptation. All right, let's kick this off. And we're going to talk first about what's going on out there in the climate change universe. And I do hear, and I know you guys are coming prepared, is like, what were the biggest, and it's August, but what were the biggest climate stories over the past 12 months for you? And I usually say, what's the top three? But if you could only come up with one or two, that's fine. But Monica, we're going to start with you. What do you think what really stood out as the big climate stories? There are many, you know, cl- climate disasters that I can get into, but they're happening more and more often and year after year. So they, unfortunately, they're not as, you know, they don't stand out as other news stand out. One that stands out for me is the SEC climate disclosure proposal. Mm. And it stands out for me because it's, even though it's still a proposal, it may or may not become a regulation. It is definitely a step forward into a regulatory organization telling companies you have to do this in order to mitigate and adapt to climate change. All right, Sean, what about you? Could you give us one? My thoughts are quite similar to Monica. I think that the big story this year is that there's no big story, or maybe there's mm-hmm. too many big stories. I remember earlier in, in early episodes of your podcast, I was able to say, well, this was a really bad fire year, or it was a bad flood year. And now we are just seeing back-to-back or sometimes simultaneous events globally. Mm -hmm. And so the big stories are non-stories now. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if the world doesn't have crisis fatigue. There's Mm -hmm. these multiple weather emergencies happening back-to-back. We have COVID, the war in Ukraine, the inflation problems, erosion of democracy, culture wars. All of these things are happening at the same time. And I'm just wondering if people are tuning out all the climate emergencies that are happening. And I'm also concerned that, you know, maybe people have internalized climate risk and they're comfortable taking their chances without really doing anything to adapt or to minimize that risk, much like is happening with COVID. You know, we've kind of become used to it now. Okay, I I know what it's like and I don't need to social distance or wear a mask. I'm vaccinated and I'm just going to live my life. And if I get sick, well, I'll get sick. And I'm concerned that we're maybe treating climate change in the same way as like, yeah, there's all these things happening and I'll just take my chances and just live my life as I plan to. Mm, Interesting. So my big story is it's becoming less of a story as more things happen. And it shouldn't, it's the opposite of what we would expect or hope. All right. An ironic answer. All right. My first one is I was really excited to see that all the federal agencies, well, not all of them, but most of them came out with their own adaptation action plans. And this was last like October. So it is in the past 
year in, in that sense. And I actually did an episode with Jesse Keen on this and that, you know, it's kind of dry and really wonky. And I'm like, all right, yeah, this will be a useful resource, but it's been probably the most popular episode I've released in the last two to three years. So it's, it's a lot of interest in that. And now I hear they're really into the implementation phase. It, those were just plans that they kind of put together. It was an aspirational attempt at saying that the federal agencies are going to start doing adaptation. So I thought that was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. All right, Monica, what do you have for our second one? The drought in Lake Mead, I think stands out from other events. Because it's really, I mean, the the drought in the West Coast as it is, is unprecedented. But the fact that Lake Mead is just drying out. And as I understand, there's like cadavers coming out of Lake Mead because the the water level is so low. I would say that is one of those extreme events that stands out from the rest. Yep. Yep. I keep, I'm here in Arizona. I keep hearing about it. A lot of local news on that too. Sean, what about you? What's the second one? So my second one is sort of like, the inverse of the one I said earlier, and that is adaptation is now everywhere in the news. You know, mm. 10 years ago, when I started out, you would see nothing in about adaptation in, in the media. And then you started seeing stories here and there, but it would have to explain what adaptation is. And now adaptation is just, at least in the news I read, adaptation just seems to be everywhere. And maybe it's because we have these daily occurrence of climate hazards that it's really making us think, or the the media is making us think, hey, this stuff is not going to stop. We need to start thinking about the future and how we're going to adapt. It's kind of the opposite. Are we tuning adaptation out or are we more in tune because of all the, all the climate hazards that are happening? It's a perfect time for an adaptation podcast. So yeah, okay. I like that. <laughs> what I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong there, you guys can kind of question these things, but I kind of felt this was a breakthrough year when it came to covering heat specifically around climate change. It's just the media has just really covered this issue well. You're hearing about chief heat officers and just it, it's in the news and it's they've been tying it with climate change really nicely. And Sean, you know, our friend, Dr. Lad Keith at University of Arizona, He's basically become the go-to guy when it comes to heat-related issues. He's always getting quoted in Washington Post and all those things. But I just, I just feel like it's really been heat has got a ton of attention. And I didn't really cover it the first three or four years, even on my podcast. And I, I've been definitely covering it a lot more in the last two years. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just saw a lad in Washington Post this morning. Maybe you can take credit for launching his celebrity. Uh, <laughs> I, think so. I, I, I first learned of him through you, and now he seems to be everywhere. I agree. Heat has got a lot more attention this year than it has in the past. And maybe that's just uh, last year we had the in the Pacific Northwest of the, those triple digit days that were unprecedented. It's happened again this year. And the Pacific Northwest, but also in Texas and Oklahoma. It happened in Europe and all at the same time. And I just think heat is now unescapable no matter where you go. Yeah. What my hope is, and I agree that it has gotten more attention than in the past. What my hope is, is that we don't forget when it's winter time, you know, (laughs) not only like our community, but also the media. And that that's it. It happens. You know, it's easy for us to talk about heat now because we're in the middle of it. But will we be talking about it in December? And it's something that we have to talk about all year round, right? Because as I have heard before, this is the coolest, probably the coolest summer of our future. 
Right, right. I see that. It's funny. I actually was chatting with Lad this morning and he definitely thinks it's going to die down by the end of August. It's unfortunately, it's a seasonal thing. And then you hear all these stories in the Southern Hemisphere and we we like to ignore those things. And so that's just the reality. But hopefully that'll change eventually. But I think he, even he sees it going to be dying down, requesting him to kind of comment on things. But Monica, do you have a, a third one? The heat wave in the Northwest that Sean just alluded to was my third one. That one stands out because places like Oregon and Washington State and, you know, Vancouver and Canada, places just don't have AC as much as they do in Florida or New York or Texas. And so that is probably why they were very affected, right? Because the infrastructure just wasn't, not the infrastructure, but homes and mostly homes were not prepared for that amount of heat and couldn't mitigate it right away. Sean, what about you? I'm going to predict a future story. Okay. And everything I hear about the COP in Egypt, that this is going to be the big year for adaptation. And I've been to a couple of COPs in the past, and it really is a mitigation-focused crowd there. Adaptation, particularly since Paris has been getting more attention at COPs. But I think this year, from everything I hear, is adaptation is really going to be elevated at this COP. And I hope a lot of great things happen with that. All right. My final one is that there it's a story in flux, but it potentially seems like it could be a big deal. All the commentary that I've read is in that we've, we've been watching Senator Joe Manchin out of West Virginia, but they just passed this past week, came up with a climate bill. And it seemed like it'd be a pivot from the Build Back Better bill that they had a while ago. And they dump that and now they're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. And everyone's convinced now that it's it can pass because it has a new name. And it sounds like there's a, some really amazing things in there to sort of transition into renewable energy. I, I, I haven't read much about on the resilience and adaptation side associated with that bill, but it does seem like it's a very encouraging thing. My senator in Arizona could potentially trip some things up, but that story it could happen in any in the next couple of weeks. So even when people listen to this, they'll they'll know one way or the other if we pass that bill. And gosh, they just need to be more creative coming up with names of bills, like you know, pass a carbon tax bill and just call it the God Bless America Act or something, because it just, it just seems like it comes down to silly superficial things. <laughs> as opposed to all the details there. So I'm encouraged by that. Okay, guys, let's pivot a bit here. I want to go in and this is, we're going to talk about the podcast. This is what we do in these review episodes. You guys are both regular listeners. And that's, that's important because we're going to talk about some of your favorite episodes, some of the episodes maybe that you potentially had some issues with. And let's start with you, Sean. I'm going to start with you. And so could, I don't know if you looked through the past 12 months or the past six months, but what were some of the episodes that stood out for you and why? Yeah, I went back to January. Okay. And I had to, I mean, because I listened to them a long time ago, I had to do a lot of homework to pick out my favorite three. And I have three, but I'm not going to list them in any particular order. The first one I have on my list is a recent one, and that was the Rocky Mountain Adaptation episode. And I really enjoyed the conversation you had with Jessica Olson, who's the executive director of the Left Hand Watershed. And what I liked about that is they're talking about restoring ecosystems to future conditions, which is something that I have been trying to get the field of conservation to think about for the last 10 or 12 years. Recently, I passed a couple years ago, I coined this term ecosystem renovation that we're starting to use at WWF. You know, when you restore a home, you restore a home, you're returning it to its previous state. When you renovate a home, you're updating it for your current needs. And that's the way we need to think about ecosystems. So when we say 
restore ecosystems, people really still have in this their mindset that we're restoring to historic conditions, but really we're renovating them. You might have to manage them differently or bring in, prioritize different kinds of species that you want to exist in that ecosystem. So we're really renovating them. So I really would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Well, I was a fly on the wall. I listened to the podcast. I would have really loved to engage personally with Jessica and learn about her experiences, trying to get that concept through restoring to future conditions with the people she works with. The other thing I really liked what Jessica was saying is that when they, they're hiring new talent, they're looking for people who have the knowledge of the latest science and are actually able to incorporate that into planning the watershed restoration. And I think that's something that conservationists really need to do. We need to bring the, the field of conservation really needs to bring in people who have that climate change and adaptation know-how and bringing that skill set and that mindset really to the field rather than training on the job. So I, I really appreciated that part of that episode. Yeah, I love that episode. And you're restoring to a future condition. When she said that, I was just like, huh, very interesting. And I wonder if that language has made it its way to like conservation biology journals and circles. Who knows? I mean, she's in that space. But yeah, that really stood out for me. All right, Monica, what about you? So one that's due to me just because of the industry I work in is the one on climate check. Climate check is basically this databases of future and current climate where you can enter your address. And then it gives you a report. You can have climate check emailed your report. So as soon as I heard that episode, I had a report emailed to my email address on my home. And, you know, so I think that's just a fantastic, useful tool that I'm glad you're highlighting on your podcast because everybody can use it, right? Everybody hopefully either rents or owns a home. Yeah, that was Cal Inman was CEO of that who came on. Yeah, that was really interesting using that tool. I actually had that as one of my favorites as well. And why I I liked it for all the same reasons Monica did. But what I really liked is that Cal called you out for moving to Tucson (laughs) when you were questioning, do people really consider climate (laughs) risk when they move to a new area and buy a home? So I just had to chuckle because, you know, Doug, I've been ribbing you for years about moving to one of the hottest places in the country. Doug, there are articles going around this week, I think, on five reasons why you should not go to Arizona on vacation. Because of the politics, probably. Or are you talking more natural? <laughs> no, I, I don't know about the politics there, but no, it was mostly climate related reasons. This is funny that, you know, I can kind of reveal behind the scenes. Sometimes I do this with my guests when you know, I kind of turn the tables and Cal interviewed me for that episode. We planned that and even planned the questions like, and Sean inspired me to put, give him oh, that yeah, question yeah. to ask, why do you move to the Southwest? And so, yeah, that was a little bit stage managed, but I knew that there were some people out there going, why is Doug living in Arizona? And it's because it's got a great climate, but no, it's great. you just sent me a picture of a f- your garage is flooded. Right, right. See, we get rain here. <laughs> Three inches okay, of water yeah. in my carport. That's monsoon season. It'll be gone within four weeks. But all right. So Sean, did you want to add, elaborate any more on that? We're going to switch back to you for that episode or should we just go to Monica for a a second one? No, I'll pick another third one, but I just want to say that was one of my favorites too. All right, Monica, what what about you? What's the second one that stood out? You alluded to the Jesse Keenan's episodes, which I think were two, right? Yes, yes. They were fantastic. They were fantastic. The reason why I liked it is it's the episode saved me so much time because then you <laughs> quickly get to know the adaptation plan of, you know, all these different 
federal entities. So that was really great. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jesse Keenan as well. He's a an expert on climate migration, which is a topic I'm interested in within, you know, adaptation. Yeah. Those were great episodes. That was another one of mine, Doug. <laughs> All right, good. They stood out. And like as I'd mentioned earlier, they were very popular. And to be honest, I was a little nervous because Jesse did all the heavy lifting. This those episodes that completely credit Jesse. He he read those reports from beginning to end and they added, you know, he had a little humor to it, but at the same time, he just got into the weeds sometimes and really explain what those things are. And what was fantastic is that you know we, we heard secondhand, a lot of government folks were listening to that episode. And a lot of them didn't want to go and read all those reports themselves. And here they had this world-class intellect reading them for them and giving his analysis of it. So yeah, I heard a lot of feedback from government types that they, they listened to it. It was their way of sort of, it's crib notes for what, what was going on out there. So yeah, that that was fun to do and relate. He really did all of us a great service by reading them and critiquing them and right down to the graphic design, even just <laughs> downloading all of them would have been a, a heavy lift. And he actually read them, which is great. I really loved that, those two episodes. I don't know, but it's my understanding that the CQ is reviewing, like there's a, they're in the implementation phase. And I don't know if there's going to be an actual report or something, but I might be able to report on that. And maybe it's something even Jesse comes back on. If there's a formal report and then Jesse can offer his expertise, I got to talk to him about it. But yeah, you're not really implementing it like you say here. We'll, we'll see if we have to have that conversation. But I, I think that's here to come. So, okay. Anything else you guys are so you kind of, there was some things stood out for you. I, I can't necessarily say I had favorites cause I wouldn't do that to my guests, but I have another favorite, Doug. Okay, please. Me too. Okay. <laughs> Maybe my next favorite will be Monica's favorite too, since she stole two of my favorites. <laughs> I really enjoyed the adapting to chronic flooding with Anthropocene uh, Alliance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about that one is we heard from four people who are experiencing flooding themselves and by being having those experiences turn them into advocates for adaptation and even activists for adaptation and i just really enjoyed hearing from people not just the experts that we typically hear on this podcast but like the people who are affected who are becoming experts and learning the hard way because they they themselves are affected by, in this case, flooding. The big takeaway from that episode for me was that there is no legal requirement to disclose prior flooding events in a home when you're selling a home. And so you buy the home and surprise, guess what? This is flooded five times in the last 10 years. And it's just up to the, the buyer to assume all that risk unknowingly, which I think is just a policy remedy screaming to happen, but I understand why it's not. I mean, I'm sure homeowners' property prices would plummet if you had to disclose flood risk. And just to give credit, that was uh, sponsored by the Natural Resources Defense Council, and I worked very closely with the Anthropocene Alliance. They're the one who's, you know, they recruited the their members who were out there doing that. And it took a while, but kind of coordinating all those interviews, and I wasn't able to use everything, but it was just kind of fascinating because, you know, most of the time I'm talking with experts in the field, and it was just like, how do you structure questions and how do you kind of get out of folks that you're not, they're not, you know, these are just regular people out there. And so, you, you, but you wanted to kind of get the right story. So that was kind of a fun episode to do and string together that's great i really i also enjoy that one but i did not that was not my third one um my third one was the one on undocumented workers and wildfires oh yeah michael mendez i I just learned a lot you know i would have never thought 
of the relationship until you mentioned it. And now it makes complete sense. I thought this story on the wildfire smoke affecting the grapes and then the workers having to pick the grapes and then them being affected by the wildfire smoke just highlights inequity, just getting worse with climate change and the fact that they don't have any protection. So I, I thought it was a very interesting episode. Fabulous. Yeah. I had like two in a row with Dr. Michael Mendes at UC Irvine, and that was very interesting. And you know what? I said I wasn't going to pick a favorite, but I do want to highlight, and it's a relatively recent episode, is I get reached out by public relations people all the time, like, you should have this person on. And most of the time, they're not even related to climate adaptation. It's maybe more energy issues. But, you know, the IPCC folks, because a report came out, there was quite a few people reaching out, but nothing quite fit. So, but I had Dr. Catherine Mock at the University of Miami on. And I really enjoyed that conversation because I wanted to take an attempt at, I guess, demystifying or debunk. And like, you know, the IPCC, so many people have no clue what it is or what they really do. And it's like, uh, does a report in us in the space? We're like, of course we know what it is, but most people don't. And I think just what the conversation I had with Catherine is that um, someone recently said they listened to it and they called it sort of like an, an explainer podcast. It's like, all right, you did a great job. And they're actually going to use it in the curriculum that they teach a college course. And it's just going to be a useful resource that way. And I, I hope it has a long shelf life. So I, I really enjoyed that conversation with her. Okay, guys, we're going to go enough of you know, highlighting the podcast, but I appreciate you guys being listeners. I'm going to go through some questions here too. And let's talk about the future of a America DAPS. And so, Monica, let's start with you. What are some future topics I should cover? Well, more adaptation in the built environment. And I will take one of the comments that Sean said at the beginning of the podcast, incorporating conservation in adaptation. I think that's something that we can definitely hone in in the built environment. We're still thinking of flood walls, you know, and nature solutions to mitigate floods. And this is just one example doesn't come to mind right away in the built environment. So just because of the industry I come in, there's a lot of education still needed around adaptation in the built environment. So that's one of my recommendations. And the other one, and you may have hit on this topic in the past climate migration success stories in the US, you know, like managed retreat stories. And there are a mm -hmm. couple that perhaps like the Blue Acres program in New Jersey has existed for a couple of decades. Highlighting stories like that would be beneficial. Yeah, great. Sean? Yeah, great suggestions, Monica. Doug, you, know, you and I have discussed this many times, and your podcast is America Adapts, but I'd like to hear a little more about what's happening in the rest of the world. So many countries are just experiencing the same kinds of things that we are here in the U.S., and what do we have to learn by what they're doing? What's being successful? What have they tried? What's not working? Monica just mentioned you know, migration. A lot of the migration, climate-driven migration is coming from other countries. How can we help those countries adapt so that people aren't forced to leave their home? Maybe they can stay there a little while longer. So I would like to hear what's happening in the rest of the world. Maybe we'll make that happen in the, in the coming year. I like the sound of that. And for those who aren't familiar with Sean's episodes, he actually took me to Uganda and Kenya for two different episodes where I did I did the community-based adaptation conference and learned all sorts of international adaptation. But yes, it's not an area. It is called America Adapts, but I'm certainly open and interested in telling more international stories. But it, it is kind of interesting on the flip side of that. I do have international listeners a lot in Europe and Australia. 
and they just like hearing. They like hearing the sort of the model that's going on in the United States, and so they get a lot of out of it. But we could certainly learn. You've from You've done a couple episodes with Australia as well. I really enjoyed those back in the day. Yeah, but I'm hoping to start traveling a bit more again too, because I've just stopped that. I've done all remote stuff, so I'm hoping that it'll happen. All right. So on that same note, I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here too, but you, these are future topics. But can you recommend any sort of, and maybe it's a different topic, but any uh, particular speakers you think would be good to come on the podcast, Monica? I recommend Missy Stoltz. She works for the city of Ann Arbor. Her exact position escapes me. I think she's like director of innovation. And I don't think she has adaptation in her role, but she has done tremendous adaptation and resilience efforts for Ann Arbor. Actually, no, Missy, we cross paths at like the National Adaptation Forum on occasion. So yeah, I hear about her often. Good suggestion. Sean, what about you? I would love to hear from Natalie Seddon and Alexander Chausson. They are at the Oxford University Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. They've done a lot of research globally on what's happening, what's working, what's not working, identified a lot of research gaps, and I think they would be great guests on your podcast. All right. Great stuff. I want to talk more broadly about the adaptation universe. We're going to kind of dig into some of these questions. I'd be curious your thoughts too, because I have this conversation with my guests when they come on, we talk about their area of focus, but then we talk more broadly about the adaptation sector. And this is something I've been trying to promote on the podcast. And so Monica, do you think universities should offer degrees in adaptation resilience, or is it good enough that you get a degree in urban planning or architecture or something like that? Do you have any thoughts on educating and adaptation? It can never hurt to have more courses on adaptation or even degrees. And I think I think it will happen organically just because there are more positions being created that have adaptation or resilience in mind. So, yes, I think that there should be more education on the topic. I think that degrees will eventually exist. There, there's a lot of folks like, you know, both of you that are experts on the topic that I think at this point can give you enough education on the adaptation sector. Okay, fantastic. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I'm kind of torn on this. There's definitely need, but I don't know that offering specific degrees on adaptation would get us very far. Every discipline needs to adapt. And so no matter what field you're going into, there needs to be climate considerations within the curriculum if you're becoming a you know a biologist or an engineer or going into business school, law, all of this climate change finds its way into all those fields. So I don't know having a degree in adaptation that where you're becoming a generalist and knows the principles is going to get you anywhere or get the world anywhere. I'm a little bit torn. I think 10 years ago, maybe, but nobody was ready for it now. We need more specialists now, not more generalists. I think you can get that specialty, even if you're getting a master's in adaptation, you know, you get a master's in ecology, you're still getting a, you know, maybe you're specializing in limnology or whatever. So I think that can happen at universities, but I do like the idea that employers are starting to think about adaptation people specifically, and they're looking for that skill set that it's, it's, you know, more three-dimensional. So I'll keep hyping that concept here on the podcast until I see otherwise, but I, I, I do support it. And I, I did an episode around that Worcester Polytechnic Institute created a master's program on the first in the country. So I, I think that's an encouraging sign. What advice would you give people, and this is related to education, would you give people who want to get into the adaptation space? I have a lot of young career or even university listeners. What, what would you tell them? Yeah, this is a great question. And my answer is similar to the one I just gave to you on, uh, should we have a degree? So I was just providing this very advice to a graduate student at the University of Michigan who's interning with us this summer. 
And what I told her is that you need to specialize. She wants to get into adaptation. What should I do? And I said, you need to specialize. And there's three ways you can specialize is what I told her. You can specialize in a sector like agriculture or urban planning or conservation. And then you understand how different climate hazards affect that sector. Or you can pick a hazard and specialize in that hazard like Lad Keith and heat or Anita Van Breda here at WWF focuses on floods. And then you understand how multiple sectors are affected by that one hazard. Or you can specialize in a geographic area like the Rocky Mountains or Sub-Saharan Africa or the Gulf Coast. And then you develop a deep understanding how multiple hazards affect multiple sectors in that place. But the point is to specialize in something and really become an expert in either a sector, a hazard, or a place. That's the advice I've been giving lately. That is a great advice. I don't think I can top that. (laughs) But, you know, my advice would be, and I was really in this not too long ago, network, find the folks in the adaptation field. And just, you know, I think now after COVID, it is more acceptable to just pick up the phone or just have a a video call with somebody and just pick their brain. I think listen to podcasts like yours, Doug. They're not, they're not enough of, of them out there. And LinkedIn, even though it might not be common sense, it has been a great tool for me to connect with folks in the adaptation and resilience field. And that's how we met, Doug, right? Yeah. So I would just become active there and find an organization locally or, you know, nationally that focuses on adaptation. I have found the organization ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, to be very beneficial. Okay. I'm going to stick with you, Monica. And related to that, and and you sort of made some recommendations, but I want just, you know, if you can think specifically recommendations on other podcasts, books, documentaries, just, you know, within climate change. And if you can think of them in climate adaptation, great. But if it's more broadly about climate change, but what are just some resources and some things like that, that you would recommend people check out? I recommend the GARP Climate Risk Podcast. That's a very good one, as well as the Yale Climate Connection Podcast. Although that one, most episodes are on mitigation and not adaptation, but there are a couple on adaptation. I learned about this series through your podcast, the PBS Adaptation Series by Alice Carrera. Fantastic. Short, to the point, inspiring, innovative. On books, I read a lot of books, so I'll probably highlight a couple. There is one called The Water Will Come, Jeff Goodell. The Water Will Come is a, is a very good book that I recommend. And I'll stop there. No, those are great. I didn't know one of those podcasts. And actually, we, I had Jeff on a long time ago. And we were talking about oh, the, that, but that book. It was a very popular book. So, Sean, what about you? What are you doing to keep yourself abreast of things? I think we should just let Monica continue with her recommendations because <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> got nothing. <laughs> Other than your podcast, Doug, which I love and I always recommend to everyone that wants to get into the biz to make sure they listen to America Adapts. I use podcasts especially as escape from climate change, right, which my right. brain thinks about all the time. So most of my podcasts are history. I love history and I listen to a lot of history podcasts and there are a lot of episodes straight that I really like. I just listened to one can't remember the name of the podcast because I listened to so many that would tie climate change and the end of the Roman Empire. And I really like listening to how climate change of the past affected uh, past civilizations. But I try not to outside of work because I think about climate change so much. I try not to listen to too many climate related podcasts. I've tried a few 
that were adaptation related and they just paled in comparison to yours, Doug. Honestly, <laughs> I won't mention any names. And I always come back home to America Adapts. Thank you very much. It was very flattering. And I do there on occasion. I love hearing that. When I was in Australia, someone there was telling me they started a new position in the environmental office at University of, I mean, Victoria State Government. And to catch up on the adaptation side of things, because that's not what his education was. He's just like, I was just listening like 30, 40 episodes of America Adapts. And that was his way of catching up. And that was very nice to hear. And, and so my resources, I, I guess I'd recommend too, is all the podcasters kind of get this if you get any sort of audience, but PR people are always sending you books. And so I got a pile of books, but I don't end up reading that much. And like, Sean, I don't want to read climate change books in my free time. <laughs> I'm thinking, what am I reading now? Just probably junk. And then podcasts on the same boat. I subscribe to quite a few because I want to keep track of what these guys are covering and kind of what's out there, but I'm not really listing them very often. I listen to junk like Smartless and there's a new Dana Carvey, David Spade podcast that I listen to. So yeah, people are out there saying, well, Doug must just constantly fill his brain. But I'm actually very fortunate. I subscribe to quite a few newsletters because scanning those headlines and then some, you know, Google alerts, those are actually pretty good, just doing the right terms there. But my guests have really educated me. So like when I get ready for an episode, I get all shared their papers and there's a lot of stuff that I have to catch up on. And the diversity is really quite cool too, because I started off in the natural resource sector with like Sean, but I've since I think moved out to everything. And it's yeah, it's helped me keep my finger on the pulse. But every once in a while it's just like I had no clue this sector was doing stuff in adaptation. So it's been kind of fun. And I don't think there's any great place that truly organizes it all. I I think the National Adaptation Forum tries to, but they don't do so much private sector, but it's still a lot of information that's coming out. So here's a question for Monica. And where do you see the adaptation sector in 10 years? And you know what? Just go out on a limb. What what do you think is going to happen there? Let's see. So it really, it, unfortunately, it depends on who is in the executive branch, right? right? right and right. the Senate. I mean, it's it's politically based in this country. It depends, right? Where do I see it? I think no matter what, we'll move forward in, a, in the adaptation field, hopefully quickly, more quicker than it's happening now. I think it will probably follow the trend that sustainability followed, you know, maybe two decades ago, that it was first just kind of like a niche field. And then now it's, you know, slowly but surely, it has gotten ingrained in most industries, right? If at at a minimum, folks are thinking about it, right? It's not the same with adaptation yet. And so in 10 years, I see adaptation being part of the conversation. How many actually impactful moves we will make, it, it really depends, right? It depends on how quickly we move. I think it will, if there's federal support, you know, even at federal or state or regional level, they need to be some regulations, you know, some updated building codes for, you know, impactful changes to take place. Great. Fantastic. Sean, what about you? Yeah, I kind of agree that it's hard to know where the sector will be in 10 years. I mean, if we don't get our act together quickly, (laughs) we're going to be basically dealing with a lot of impacts after the fact. And it's going to be very hard to adapt. Our window for successfully adapting is closing as climate change continues. So we really need to get our act together. I really see in 10 years that it's really not a big topic of conversation or just because it's so mainstreamed. People just consider it as everyday business as usual. Yeah, I have a follow-up to that and it ties back to you know recommendations and books, etc. There is a book called The Ostrich Paradox 
why we underprepare for disasters. And, you know, just by the title of the book, it really only relates to acute events. But our psychology, our human way of thinking is we're wired to forget things that happened a while back. And a while back, I mean, like five years, you know, it's not that long. And that way of thinking helps us on the day-to-day living, right? That's how we learn. And this is this example is given in the book, how we learn to ride a bike. We fall and then we get on the bike again and we keep trying. And we psychologically just forget that we fell, right? And suddenly we learn how to ride the bike and we forget that we forgot that we we struggle at the beginning. And that way of thinking does not help us prepare for disasters, let alone things that like extreme heat that happen very slowly. So I think that more than just develop adaptation measures throughout all organizations and all systems, we also have to get into the way of how we think, right? And and change that in order to prepare for this different future. That was a tangent, but I hope that you find the relationship to what we were talking about where we're going to be in 10 years. No, that's great. That was a great add-on. And I guess, you know, I was just thinking in real time, just hearing you both talk about it, that I think in 10 years, it's certainly going to be much more mature. And I look at that Colorado episode as how they created that Office of Resilience and they're creating an institution, they're creating an infrastructure around it. But what I think is just so unpredictable is that this parallel movement on the mitigation side, getting carbon under control is absolutely going to inform how the adaptation sector is. And so there's sort of almost cool, all right, well, you know, we can get in control of this on the adaptation side. And, you know, it's just going to be this roller coaster that maybe in 10 years, there's a sense of urgency in the adaptation space that doesn't exist now. I mean, we, we think there's this urgency. Oh, look, they had this big story on wildfire. It's not out there. There's not that urgency with the general public. But I think as each, it's almost like, I don't want to compare it to a meteor hitting the earth, but it's just like, we know that this meteor is going to hit the earth, but it's right now it's at Jupiter and it's going to be decades from hitting us. And then when that thing is in the orbit of Mars, we're like, wait a sec, what's the narrative? What's the storyline here? And how do we change our behavior based on that? So I, I think that could drive a lot of adaptation planning. We'll see. Don't look up. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I thought of the movie too. I, I only got 30 minutes into that. I don't know. I just, uh, it just didn't appeal to me. Maybe you guys don't have any advice because you're not very good at it, but you, how could I use social media better to promote American apps? Prom- promoting American apps is a big part of what you got to do. You release an episode, you get your guests to promote it. Is any advice you can give me on better promotion? Well, you preface that with like, maybe you guys aren't good at social media. <laughs> maybe <so>. you're not. <laughs> how old are you, Sean? Actually, you're, are you over I'm, 22? I'm taking a social media break. Since the pandemic, I'm not the best person to ask this, but I will say that every opportunity that I can, I promote the podcast. I give a lot of talks and people always want to know, where can we learn more? And you are a resource that I always refer to. The one social media channel that I I am active on is uh, LinkedIn that we talked about earlier, I think. And Monica mentioned it as a great networking tool. And I think, Doug, I don't know if you release podcast episodes on LinkedIn, but I would love to share those when you do. I do. And I I find LinkedIn actually, you know, for the longest time, we all thought like, what is it really here for? But uh, connecting has been great. But then I post a lot and especially when I publish an episode. And so Sean, it's probably the easiest way to do is like when I post a link to the web page that I create for each episode, there's an embedded player there. So if there's just it's a one click that'll get you to a spot where you can actually listen. So just if you want to share those, that'd probably be your best because I got to be able to track the downloads. And if I'm just somehow uploading a file or audio to LinkedIn, I won't be able to really track it very well. So that's, but it, go to the webpage. That would be the best thing. 
So I also just closed my Facebook account because I was spending too much time on it um, <laughs> and I didn't find value on it. But I do use Instagram and I like it because I follow organizations like the World Wildlife Fund and many other nonprofits and media outlets. And one thing they do is basically, and maybe you can do this for the podcast, after you release the episode, you can come up with almost like a very a summary of the episode and just kind of a couple of quotes from the person that you interviewed to kind of catch the attention of the audience. And if they want to know more, then they can listen to the whole episode. Because sometimes that, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times, I they do that. And then if I want to dig into the article, then, you know, I'll go to the article and read it. LinkedIn promoting the article there, that podcast there can be, I think, pretty impactful. I also talk about your podcast when I present or, you know, I produce these resilience news every month for my company. And so every month I recommend a podcast, a documentary or a movie on the topic of resilience and adaptation. Oh, very cool. Well, that too. The newsletters I find are great if you can manage to get into one. There's, you know, a lot, sometimes a lot of eyeballs. And I do my own newsletter and it's a chance to kind of reemphasize things. So, so Doug, I did think about what I wanted to say. You know, MySpace isn't a thing anymore if that's what you're going to recommend. Okay. So, um, go on. <laughs> MySpace was before my time, Doug. Oh, okay. I don't know if you get lots of fan mail or inquiries from guests, but when I listen to other podcasts, one thing I really like is hearing from you know what their audiences have to say or questions from the audience. There's a British history podcast that I listens to that takes questions from their audience and then they invite an expert on to to talk about or answer the questions. And I think that's a great way to expand your audience is when somebody knows that their name and question is going to be featured on the episode, they will tell all their friends. And I think you should try that out. I did something similar where I, if it's, someone randomly reached out, then maybe I talk about what they do. They're in the space. If we had a little conversation, it wasn't necessarily so much of a question, but yeah, no, it's a good idea. Invite questions. Okay, guys, send me some questions right now. <laughs> You're asking us, <laughs> right? So, you ask your audience, see what they want. Right now, my listeners, send me some questions. You can find my email on my website, americadaps.org. One final pivot here, and I want to turn over the reins of the podcast briefly to each of my guests. We did, we've done this before and, and Monica, I'm going to start with Sean, just maybe if, you, if it's helpful to you just sort of follow his lead, but Sean, you're going to take over as host of America Daps. What you got some questions. Oh, I get to be a podcast host. This is so exciting. <laughs> Doug, you know, you used to live here in DC and you moved so far away in Tucson. And I just want to know, do you feel connected with the, adaptation community since you left DC where there's so many of us? Uh, yes and no. The podcast allows me a nice network into a lot of people, probably, probably much bigger than your community, but it's not like I'm communicating with all of them. In fact, I rarely get to hear from all of them. I mean, you just, you don't know who they are. It's just the, the nature of podcasts. But yeah, it's definitely a sacrifice. I, I do miss going to happy hours. You know, there used to be this flooding happy hour that occurred and you're getting the chance to talk to people or if there's presentations or meetings, I could just show up. I do miss that. That's a great way to connect, get some some names and all that. So yeah, I think that was an issue. And DC is a great spot, but just for my own mental well-being, the winters were crushing me <laughs> and I just couldn't take it. And so 
certainly the lifestyle has made up for it here in Arizona. I'd love it here. It's a great place. If you've ever been in Tucson, it's just I, my backyard is like a wildlife you know, nature reserve. <laughs> just bobcats and everything. So they, you know, you're so, always sending me pictures of those bobcats and hummingbirds and yeah, lizards yeah. and tarantulas. Really appreciate them. It hasn't snowed here in DC all summer. I'll just let you know. <laughs> I asked you that question because I personally, since the pandemic, feel much less connected to the adaptation community. And I think it's the, the lack of travel. used yeah. to go to conferences and I always thought, you know, conferences, you know, you listen to a bunch of boring presentations that you can now listen online from the comfort of your office or living room. But I really miss the networking and getting to know new people and yeah. learning from new people and expanding my network and I just think the pandemic is just, you know, the rise of remote work. It seems like all of us are just working in silos with people that we have transactions. Work has become transactional and much less rich. The learning isn't happening. And I just took my first trip to Brazil. That's not my first trip to Brazil, but my, my first conference trip was recently to Brazil where I got to present to a bunch of development bankers on adaptation. And just the experience was wonderful. A lot of boring presentations, but the dinners and the field trips and the coffee breaks are where I really got to know people. And a lot of new ideas for new, exciting work came up during those breaks. And so I'm really eager to reconnect with the field. And I saw the pictures of the freshwater dolphins that you were swimming with. That was pretty fantastic. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a great experience and was part of the bonding experience with the, all the other adaptation people there. And I agree. I miss going to conferences. I, I, I might go to the National Adaptation Forum this year. It's in Baltimore, I think, in October. You know, I typically need to get sponsored if I'm going to go to conferences. So, so we'll see. But the hallways and the coffee breaks, I love that stuff. Happy hours. like The presentations are hit or miss, but I certainly do miss that. So I agree. I miss the in-person conferences and the mingling that goes along with it. I have a couple of in-person conferences this fall, and I'm really looking forward to them. But the pandemic also, and I think I mentioned this before, it taught me that you can just reach out to a stranger that is in the same sector and just say, hey, let's chat. Let's learn from what you're doing in your organization. I'll tell you what I'm doing. Maybe we find, you know, something to collaborate on. Maybe we just, we're just connections, right? But we learn from each other. So I think it's just getting the best out of both virtual connection and in-person connection. But to answer the question, I do feel connected in the adaptation sector. It took me a little bit, right, to know who is who and, and where those organizations are. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know all of them yet, but there is a big community out there. You know, we're all trying to do the same and we have to collaborate because we're all connected. Okay, Doug, if you could interview anybody that's not in the adaptation field, but you would really like to find out what is on their brain about climate change and adaptation, who would that be? Okay, they're not in the adaptation. I mean, I've thought about this a lot. Like, who would I have it on, like, you know, a celebrity or something? But you're, I'm, I'm asking about climate adaptation, even though they're not in the adaptation space. You know, everyone's by this point knows somebody or personally has been affected by climate change, whether they believe it's real or not. And so who would you want to talk to? Oh, I think there's two sides to that. I think getting President Obama on because he's not currently president, maybe he would be a bit more revealing and, you know, just sort of push him too. you know, he did a lot on climate change, but just well, I would argue that he didn't elevate it to the urgency that it needed. And he's obviously a very thoughtful guy. I think that would be fantastic. But I think there's be a real appeal to get 
truly a high level, be it a Republican, a conservative, someone who's just really not been in the way, but they just have an honest conversation about kind of what's going on. I don't know if you ever heard, he's a political operative, Rick Wilson. He used to be a Republican political operative, but now he's kind of like a never Trumper. Getting one of those guys who've put a lot of thought on the Republican politics, but now are truly like on the other side, picking their brain about climate change and sort of saying, how did you guys really, why did you blow this off? And I think he would be really honest and be really interesting. So I guess those kind of two there. Great. Monica, do you have anybody that you would like to meet or you would like Doug to interview? A celebrity, I would say I'm a big fan of Jacinda Ardern, like the the prime minister of New Zealand. And she has taken some topics and just be, you know, taken radical measures and it has worked. So yeah, she would be my, my choice. That's a great choice, Monica. I just read yesterday that the government of New Zealand has just released their first national adaptation plan. And so oh, you, you might want to talk to her about that. The James Shaw is the climate minister. If you can't get in touch with the prime minister, great choice. And New Zealand's on my bucket list. I want to do an in-person adaptation event there. <laughs> Haven't been if there If you need yet. assistance, let us know. <laughs> I've been there and it's... It's spectacular. I went there when I lived in Australia. It is gorgeous as you think it is. So it's really cool. All right. Thanks, Sean, for hosting America DAPS. I give you a solid C minus. You can work on it. So <laughs> Monica, we're going to let I'm you take over. aiming for hosting. B plus. Invite okay. me back sometime. You're 2027. 20, we'll get there. All right, Monica, what about you? You're going to take over as hosts. What, what do you got? Sounds good. What an honor. So I have a question for you both. If you had to move somewhere, right, and keep adaptation in mind, where would you move to? So let's start with Doug. Boy. And you're not allowed to check climatecheck.com. Right, right. <laughs> and this is like in the immediate future, or you're just sort of saying long term kind of no, thing. No, you're you're moving for the long haul. You're moving for the long haul. So you're gonna pick a place where you know you probably have low climate risk. Where would you move to? Um Gosh, I I'm not going north because the You're journey. Talking to a guy who moved to Tucson and has flooding in his garage. I know. I I, I want to say Tucson because I love it here, and you they've actually not we're not Phoenix. We've actually done a good job protecting water resources here, and there's a lot of underground storage. It's actually they've planned ahead here. The rest of the state, I mean, they they get a bad rap, but I wouldn't mind maybe going to an island in a subtropical area that might get a bit warmer, but it's always going to be tempered by the ocean and it's you know relatively high elevation. So sea level rise won't necessarily be that bad. And so I'm you know talking Tahiti or something like that. And so I'm sure people come up with any reason so that's a terrible idea, but I'm not going north. Like Jesse Keenan has done, oh, racing Wisconsin, that'll be the place of it. I'm not going there. Heck no. <laughs> I'll rather suffer through some bad climate work, but I'm not going north and they're there's no, the only biodiversity in those states are like rock pigeons and rats and raccoons. So there's nothing up there. And so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to uh, Tucson. I'll give you an idea. I just came back from the Azores Islands, okay. that part of Portugal. And that is a place where the weather is tempered all year round. Right now in Spain, it was, you know, 100 degrees. Azores, it was 75 and apparently go. it's that way all year round. Very green. Not that it's not affected by climate change. I think everywhere is affected by climate change, but it appears that it's low climate risk. So let's move on to Sean. Sean, where will you move to? Yeah, the Azores would be great place. I was in Madeira last, in 2020, a little bit warmer than there and less temperate, but just a beautiful climate. But small islands just kind of scare me in the age of climate change. Doug, what are you thinking? You're like literally jumping from the 
fire to the for the frying pan to the fire to Sanda Tahiti. I like cool weather and cold weather even. And a friend of mine was just in the Adirondacks when it was 97 and humid here in DC and it was 75 up there. So, you know, somewhere beautiful like the Adirondacks where it's still going to be cool for a while and there's still going to be water for the foreseeable future. I think Duluth has been deemed the most climate yeah, safe city right. in the country. I don't yeah. know if I'm ready to go to Duluth. I don't mind the winters, but it doesn't seem, I don't know. I like hill, like mountains like the Adirondacks. So that's where I would go. Okay. I think I would move to Maine. Not too <laughs> close to the water, but you know, within an hour or so to the water. That's where I would move to. Maine's a good choice too. Maine's beautiful in the summer, all two weeks of it. So good choice. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And Doug, um, all that biodiversity is going to be moving up this way. So okay, you're right. Okay, that is true. Yes, 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 that is true. And, and when I was in Azores, they actually I went whale watching, and we saw both whales and dolphins. And the captain of the of the ship was saying that fine in Azores is now showing up in Denmark because of ocean warming. So anyhow, so to to your point, Sean, I think some biodiversity is going to shift north. My second question to you both is, if you had an hour that you had to focus on learning more about adaptation, where would you go to? What website, what, you know, and it kind of relates to what we're talking about, just recommendations of what would you read if you had to spend the next hour on adaptation? I I haven't plugged it for a while, but I have short attention span. And so I'm always skipping around on things. And so I don't like, I don't know if you've heard of cake X it's, you know, EcoDAP has this website where they consolidate a lot of information around adaptation. And so, you know, a lot of good visual stuff, a lot of good articles and blogs and all that. And so I probably just read an article for 10 minutes, move on to something else. And so that just appeals to how my brain works. And so I'm not going to go just do a deep, I'm not going to go read a journal article for 60 minutes. I just, I'm, I don't have a great attention mm-hmm. span. So yeah, I'd probably recommend, I don't know how active it is right now. I haven't used it for a while. Cool. I've never heard of that before. What about you, Sean? Mm, I am so much in the nature world. I don't even know outside of that world wh- where I would go to learn. And Monica, you said, you know, we need to, Doug needs to focus more on the built environment. And I need to learn a lot more about that myself. Just with all the recent heat waves, I just saw an article about, you know, how our infrastructure is failing because of heat, particularly, you know, airport runways and rail tracks and roads are melting. I'd like to learn a lot more about that, but I don't know a resource that I could go to and learn everything I need to know in one hour. (laughs) Um, There's two other sites that I like to poke around in from time to time. One is the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Index, and they sort of rank countries on vulnerability and readiness. And I like to go back there frequently just to see how Ireland's doing this year or Vanuatu, or I don't learn a lot about adaptation, but I like to see trends in how countries are progressing. There are also resources for the national adaptation plans to see what countries are at least planning to do. And then there's a site, Our World in Data, that is just wonderful resource for all kinds of data, not just climate related data. And I just love poking around there to seeing what I can learn. I'm kind of a data nerd and they have great data visualizations. So there's a lot of things on disasters and carbon emission, greenhouse gas emission trends and all kinds of stuff. Very cool. I would probably have had this on my to-do list for a while, but I just haven't found the time. I would probably spend that hour 
watching webinars from the Wharton, you know, Wharton, UPenn, Wharton. Yeah. They have a risk center, climate risk center. And those are some good webinars. I haven't finished them yet, but I would spend some time there. I'm also a big fan of TED Talks. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of on adaptation and resilience. So I would probably watch those. I had some bad news. I know Carolyn Kuski well, and they're closing that risk center shop. And she just started the Environmental Defense Fund, which is great for her. But yeah, they, they're kind of shuttering that little office there and they punch oh, them both their no. weight class. A lot of people were using them. And yeah, I was surprised to hear that. Interesting. And just, I would add one more thing, and I'm a Google Maps kind of guy. And so, like, we, we were talking about Climate Check, that tool Cal Inman has, just putting in houses yeah. of friends and communities and just going and then reading this report. I, I would probably waste a lot of time doing that too. It'd be like, oh, I have an aunt in Santa Fe, New Mexico. What's it going to be like for that? I could easily see. And you could probably learn a ton too. So so would you send the reports of your friend's house to them after you see them? I, I might, even though it, it might as well just be a foreign language. To I did someone that I had worked with. I sent him the tool just so he could play with it. And they were looking at, and I'm not mentioning a name, so nothing revealing, but they were going to freeze some eggs for, and they wanted to pick a secure location. And so they were originally going to potentially do something in Florida, but they did that climate check and they brought up all these potential issues. And so they ended up doing something much more inland. And so they actually used the climate check for what I thought was a very, and I told Cal this, I'm like, hey, someone was using their tool for, you know, where they're going to store uh, eggs, fertilized eggs and all that. So I just, yeah, that was fascinating how people are going to make decisions that way. That is so interesting and definitely circles back to the point that Sean was making before that every sector needs to think of adaptation. It is true indeed. I'm going to wrest control back from you, Monica. You did fantastic. Your first go. Thank you. You guys should both start your own podcast. I'm serious. I think you'd have some fun with it. With a Let's- C minus? See my no. Did I do better? He got a solid A minus because I'm not going to insult a a new guest. And Sean's always (laughs) insulting me and telling me what I'm doing wrong. I don't know where I went wrong in this friendship where he just feels so comfortable. You were rude and mean to me even when I was in DC. So don't give me this Tucson business. Tough crowd. (laughs) (laughs) No, these Sean and great. I I love them, but they're 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 tough. But it's the keeping me on. Yeah. Okay. Guys, let's wrap this up. You know, what's next for you, even work-wise? And if you have any recommendations, if you want to share anything that you're doing, maybe visit a website or whatever. But Monica, like, how do you want to sign off here? There's so much work to be done in the adaptation sector and the built environment. So in the near future, I just see, you know, our industry just pushing harder and harder on adapting and not only incorporating resilience. That's I feel like that's the first step, but also thinking outside the box, right? And just saying, is this really a good location to build? You know, maybe we shouldn't be building here. Maybe it's just too risky, right? And and thinking about that as well. Looking at future climate, I know probably to you sounds such common sense, but it's not done widely enough. We need to plan for the future. We need to stop using so much historical or only historical data. So that's really what I see you know, in the future, it's just, you know, there's so much work to be done, but the the adaptation community inspires me every day. You know, our future is really, it's up to us. Fantastic. Final message, Sean, send us off. Yeah, I think mangroves are going to be in my future in the next couple of years. I've been working a lot on mangrove conservation and restoration as a means of adaptation and in four countries, Fiji, Madagascar, Colombia, and Mexico. I was in Fiji earlier this year talking to communities to learn about how they're affected by climate change and how we could help them with mangroves and beyond mangroves. We're developing a 
climate smart mangrove restoration decision support tool. That's a mouthful. How are mangroves vulnerable to changes in climate? Where's the best places to restore them? And how do you manage them once they've established, they're established in a place as the climate continues to change? There's so much we need to learn about how ecosystems, particularly mangroves, respond to climate change and really excited about that work here and become a mangrove expert in the next couple of years. But there's like Monica said, there's so much to do. I say mangroves today and it could be something else tomorrow. I like the sound of this mangroves. All right, guys, I appreciate you coming on. This was a fun episode and it was fun learning what you guys had to say about all these topics. And I appreciate you giving hosting duties. And I would re- recommend to my listeners, if you want to contact, I think you guys are both pretty accessible. You can find them on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll probably have LinkedIn accounts on the webpage, not emails or anything, but just that you can try to connect if you want to learn more about what they're up to. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Doug, for the opportunity. Thanks, Doug. Hi, Adapters. Welcome back. Joining me is Dr. Jeff Colgan. Jeff is the director of the Climate Solutions Lab at the Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs at Brown University. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. I brought you on because I want to talk about this great new resource that you guys have there at the Solutions Lab. But I guess just first off, you do more than what we're going to be talking about with the the syllabi search engine there. What is the Climate Solutions Lab? So the Climate Solutions Lab is something that got started two years ago as a way for Brown University to up its game on climate policy in particular. And so we're interested in timely, high-quality, fact-based research that affects the policy discussion. And so we study all kinds of things like the geopolitics of the clean energy transition and climate politics here in the United States and else. Really fun group of people, mostly political scientists, but also other social scientists. Well, and I guess getting into that, because a lot of universities are really getting into the climate space and creating resources and such. How difficult was that? I'm sure there's things going on at Brown you probably even weren't aware of, but when you create this solutions lab, do professors come out of the word work and say, oh, we want to be a contributor. We want to not even necessarily a political scientist. Was that process happening or are you still kind of growing? Yeah, I'm very lucky to be at a place where there's a lot of people who are interested in climate change from across the university. So from engineering to geophysics to you know economics, political science, sociology, etc. And so Brown actually has a whole environment institute like many universities does. And so it's taking the lead on climate change issues at Brown. But within the Watson Institute, which is kind of like a what's known as an APSIA school and a school of public affairs or, or international affairs, and there just wasn't a big climate space at the Watson Institute historically. And so I thought, look, this is kind of embarrassing. If we're going to be talking about international affairs, we're educating on international affairs, we have to be addressing what is the sort of defining challenge of our time. Well, that's fantastic. Obviously, Brown has a world-class reputation and you guys are in it and looking forward to seeing what you guys are going to do there at the lab. I reached out to you originally because I just randomly came across on LinkedIn, on someone else's post, this syllabus bank that you have there at the lab. And I started digging around and I thought it was just fantastic. And I know it's relatively early days, but I'm going to ask you some specific questions, but more broadly, what is the syllabus bank? Yeah. So one thing we noticed was that there is a lot more student demand for courses on climate change and climate politics specifically than uh, universities are actually offering. In fact, a lot of political scientists specifically 
are a little bit uncomfortable teaching climate change because they probably weren't taught a whole lot about climate politics when they were in grad school. And uh, so it might not be sort of a, a natural for them. And we wanted to make it easier for instructors, not just in this country, but around the world, to meet the student demand for climate change. Uh, and to do that, we thought, let's make some syllabi available, not just in political science, but in other social sciences like sociology or law or economics, or geography. And we'll put them up on this centralized archive called the Climate Syllabus Bank. We'll make it free for anyone to download. It's very easy. You can go on there, search for different courses that have different characteristics and just learn what other people are doing so that it just gets a little less intimidating to teach a new course about. Okay. And it sounds relatively simple is that we're getting syllabi up there for people to look at. But when you started it and you're sort of creating anything sort of pop up, you're like, you know, there's information that you're filling. There's basically who they are, what university and stuff. And they're actually, you can do, and I've done it. I've looked at a ton of the syllabi and I think you, most of the time it comes up as a PDF, but were there things that complicated what you were doing early on as you're like, well, how do we create sort of a uniform system here? Yeah, of course. It's a little bit tricky on the, the back end just to make sure that there's a consistent product for people to access. But we wanted to make it easy for instructors who are donating their syllabi, because of course, this is all being done for free, right? This is all volunteer basis. And, you know, I have to be honest, a lot of the people who have donated their syllabi to the syllabus bank are friends of mine or colleagues of mine that I know, and I was able to reach out to you and say, hey, would you do this? And so it all runs on goodwill. And, you know, maybe for another topic, people might be a little bit more protective of their syllabus and not want to share it. And, you know, people feel like, well, this is my intellectual property and I fully respect that. But the, I think the, the pitch that we have is like, look, climate change is such an important problem. And we have this issue here where, you know, there's a, a big gap between student demand and what many instructors are comfortable teaching, right? They just don't feel comfortable teaching climate change because it's hard work to design a new course. As anybody who's ever done it knows, it's it's a real investment of time. And so if we could make that easier, we can educate students faster about this crucial problem that the world faces. And it's a pitch that I think was really successful in the sense that once we started running, we've only been doing this for about a year and a half, and we've had something like 30,000 visits to the website. We've had something like 7,000 downloads of the, the syllabi that are on there. So just a, a huge response. Half of that comes from the United States and about another half comes from the rest of the world. So it's exciting to be able to be a global resource for people. Well, just the fact that it's up, what's there is interesting. So you're there providing research to other professors and students can kind of see, but it's just fascinating to kind of get inside the brain of a professor too. It's like, how do they create a climate policy course? And you look at their supplemental readings and supplemental resources. And in my own, I've had a few say that use the podcast in their syllabi, which I'm encouraging. If you're listening to that, consider that. But it's just fascinating looking at that. And I would hope Maybe as you get even more people in there, you're going to have a graduate student that's going to go through these things and start looking for pattern. Because I think that in itself could be really useful exercise because how is this kind of organically happening out there? What consistent courses and topics are people covering? There, there could be a really, there could be some science kind of actually coming out of your, your data bank here. 
Yeah, I suppose that's right. I mean, it's amazing how much diversity there is in the different kinds of ways to teach this topic. And it's great to see people have different features of courses. So if you're interested in doing a, a class simulation, you can see how others have done it. If you're interested in particular topics like environmental justice or racial politics connected with climate change, you can look for that in the syllabus bank. I think that that offers people, even people who already have their own syllabus uh, or their own course on this, maybe ways to, to upgrade or update their own. Well, if I could put my two cents into it, I know this is all volunteer and you're trying to keep it as simple as possible, but if there's like a pull down menu that says adaptation or mitigation or both, that would also be incredibly helpful as people are kind of looking through these because sometimes you'll just see a generic environmental policy course and then it'll take some while to kind of dig through. It's like, wow, this really is focusing on the energy side of things. Anyway, my two cents, because I think there's an emerging desire to just focus on the adaptation resilience side. So that that, that would be a great point. Absolutely. Thank you for making the suggestion. Before I let you go, just I have a lot of professors that listen to this podcast. Literally, what's the process that they go through? I mean, you don't have to go line by line, but it, you've kept it relatively simple. They, I'll have links on the webpage for this episode that they can click and they're going to go there, but it's just, it's a submission process, right? Yeah. So if they're searching for a syllabi, the, the thing to do is just to type in climate syllabus bank on Google. They'll take you right there almost. And then you can, on the website, there is a very clear link. You just say search the syllabus bank. It pops up. You can just browse all of the ones there, or you can type in a keyword into the box, you know, an instructor's name or a particular course or what have you, or an institution like, oh, I want, a, I want one from University of Alabama, something like that. If you're donating a syllabus, which I love, of course, and hope that people will do. It's the same thing. You go to the Climate Syllabus Bank website, and then there's just a, a link there on the, the front page, the opening landing page of the Climate Syllabus Bank. And then it, that takes you to a, a Google form. It's really simple. You just fill out you know, your name, your institution, and upload your file, whether that's a PDF or a Word document. It doesn't matter. We'll take whatever you got. And then somebody here, one of my staff, will, will take your file and upload it to the Climate Syllabus Bank uh, on the back end. And could a student upload, would you encourage this? If they, they're taking a climate course, the professor's never going to get around to it. Could, would you, could you encourage a student that they just upload the PDF of a course that they've t- taken? Or are you kind of discouraging that? Do you really want the professors to take ownership of it? You know, we'd be delighted if the student would sort of do the work of doing that, but we, we want to make sure that the professor, the instructor of record, is giving permission uh, for the syllabus to be up okay. because, of course, it's their work. So that's the main. Just I want to make that clear because I'm using this interview guys out there that if you, I know you're, you teach a lot of great courses. Let's start populating this database because it's going to be a great resource for everyone. So make the time and effort. And I know sometimes students have more time to do that. But for if you are a student, maybe encourage your professor to check this out and you could even offer to do it on the behalf, but definitely get the permission. Exactly. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on and what you're doing there at Brown. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be on. And thank you for your work on climate adaptation. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Monica and Sean for coming on the podcast. I encourage you to reach out to them if you want to connect. 
They're doing really cool and important work in very different sectors. I love doing these episodes. It's a chance for me to relax a bit and talk more casually with some friends and colleagues. And I'll always enjoy getting feedback on the podcast and hearing potential directions we can take these conversations. Please take a moment to share this episode with your own social media channels. We had that chat about ways to use social media more effectively. Well, I'm recruiting you guys to help with that. Get on it. And don't forget to check out the Climate Solutions Lab and their syllabi database. If you're a professor, take some time, upload your syllabi in a PDF or a Word. It's super easy. I have links in my show notes. Check them out. You're doing everyone a favor, and I encourage you to poke around, and you you might get some of your own ideas for your classes. Okay, so what's your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what climate adaptation is? Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Apps. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location to record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners have been the Natural Resources Defense Council, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, and other corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentations. Many groups work into their communication strategies. Also, if you are working with a foundation, foundations are funding you and they expect you to tell the story of the work that you're doing for them. Maybe this is something that you can recommend to the foundation that you would like to fund to tell your story. There's no better platform than this podcast to get your word out on adaptation. Reach out if you want to learn more. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I speak a lot and I really enjoy this. I've been doing keynote presentations. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation policy. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can reach me at americadaps.org. Okay, guys, I say it every episode and I'm going to say it again this episode. I love hearing from you. Reach out. Take the time to email. I put a lot of work into these episodes, guys. Take five minutes to email me just to say who you are, why you listen to the podcast. Maybe you have some ideas for the podcast and tell me what you do. This is really important information for me. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.